welcome to Lutheran Weekly. This week, we look at ways to get the word to those with special needs. We have an interview with Pastor Harold Shear, chaplain at the University of Iowa Hospital, and our tech tip involves bringing the message to those who can't be in church for services. We apologize for having no podcast last week. I was on vacation. We're back on schedule now, so without further ado, on with the interview. I have with me today Pastor Harold Shear, the chaplain at University of Iowa Hospital. Welcome, Harold. Good morning. So how long have you been in the chaplaincy program, and how did you get started there? Well, I'll be here 27 years, the 1st of November. But as far as getting started into chaplaincy, it goes way back to shortly after my wife and I were married, when I she was serving as a nurse in Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C., and I worked as a neighborhood liaison worker for a Lutheran church and a Catholic church uh, one summer for about eight weeks, ten weeks, with a neighborhood uh, of in the poor black area on the northwest side of Washington, D.C., and this Lutheran pastor says, Harold, whatever you do before sometime, whenever you can, make sure you get some clinical pastoral education. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of was in my mind. And, and then during my year of vicarage or internship, I was able to get a quarter of clinical pastor education. And after a couple of weeks, the supervisor says, Harold, you need to get a year of this. And I enjoyed that quarter, but I also found out how painful that clinical pastor education process can be. But after a few weeks, I realized I needed to get a year because of my or me not living my faith as I thought I was. And that's one of the big parts of clinical pastor education is self-knowledge. And and I knew my faith, but I wasn't living my faith like I thought I was. And so back then, it was a pretty much unwritten rule that you couldn't get a year of clinical pastor education until uh, you had three years in a parish. And that was okay with me because I had always thought I'd always be a parish pastor. I was raised here in eastern Iowa and on farms and so forth and just thought I'd always serve in a rural parish somewhere hmm. in the Midwest. And uh, after, during the first uh, congregation that I served in northern Arkansas, a retirement uh, recreational area, a beautiful, beautiful country and great congregation. It was a mission congregation and it was growing by leaps and bounds because of people from the Midwest moving down there to retire. And But I found out that I was ready for that clinical pastor education that year, that residency program, and uh, took that at Rochester, Minnesota, at Methodist Hospital there, and, uh, and had kind of determined while I was in the parish that I wanted to be in chaplaincy and rather than in a parish because of all the administrative detail and program director work and so forth that parish pastors have. And Mm -hmm. I could do it, and I could do it well, but I'd rather spend more time with people. And and the chaplaincy ministry provided that opportunity. So that turned out to be the goal, and and that got me started. That's fascinating. So you have a lot less administrative kind of um, duties, and you get to spend a lot more time with people this way? That's right. I was wondering how much uh, how much paperwork and stuff that you had to go through and take care of on a daily basis. Well, there's some, and especially now that we're doing electronic charting, uh, we didn't used to do any charting at all. And uh, our new coordinator of our department got us started on charting, which is appropriate. 
but it's a time consumer as any nurse or anybody who who uh, has to do chart work with patients will tell you and uh, we can't put in confidential things that patients don't want everybody to know and so we have to cross our eyes and dot our T's so to speak yeah but uh, that that's become uh, a bigger item of time consuming but also uh, making sure that we contact the patients that we think we should contact and follow up on referrals and uh, and do the paperwork so that we can keep track of where people are at and, and uh, not let people fall, fall through the cracks. That's kind of a real easy thing that can happen because uh, our, our uh, paper trail has changed in the last few years. We used to get a card, a patient card, of information on every patient that was admitted, and we could use that and then use that to keep track of the patient while they were here in the hospital. We no longer have that uh, particular piece of information on, on that hard copy anymore, and mm-hmm. we get a daily printout of uh, patients, but they move around, and and unless you somehow keep track of that, why, it's real easy for patients to fall through the cracks. Sure. Well, especially in a hospital as big as the one that you're in. Well, and then they transfer from area to area because of different needs and needs change from before surgery to surgery to after surgery and and then in the healing process thereafter so that they can be in three or four different units in the process. Sure. But I'm grateful for people who make sure they list, list their religious preference as Lutheran or Lutheran Missouri Synod, especially Lutheran Missouri Synod, because those are my first priority since our district has been supporting this position since 1936. Wow, that's a long time. So what are some struggles that are unique to the chaplaincy program? Oh, it's an ongoing education process for people in our district uh, and and leaders in our district to know what a chaplain does uh, so that they want to continue supporting it because it's an expensive uh, mission and expensive ministry uh to support and i you know i can't take up an offering plate uh, and so i have come to appreciate the support from our our congregations and pastors and lay people uh immensely because they so many of them don't know what i do and i really they've come to appreciate my sharing with them what i do and of course the patients and families here they find out firsthand real quickly, and they're my best uh, educators back home sure. uh, all the time. And so I'm just uh, have come to appreciate that challenge. And and also after living in Iowa City a while, the first years I'd read in the newspaper about endowment funds over and over again, the endowed chairs for different professorships and different uh, needs within the university and in the hospital and so forth. And and I realized that there are people who would support an endowment fund for this position if there was one. And um, when we had, the district had to make a cut of a chaplain back in 88, why I started right then to get an endowment fund going because uh, it just makes sense to have this position supported by an endowment fund rather than taking it out of the district budget all the time. Sure. So you talked about education, letting 
um, people understand what you do. And so are there misunderstandings or criticisms that you've encountered as far as your role as chaplain, and how do you respond to those? Well, there have been criticisms uh, because of people not knowing or not appreciating pastoral care because uh, not all all of our pastors have been taught the value of pastoral care or uh, understand and appreciate the value of pastoral care, even in congregations. Uh, People like to be listened to. People want to be heard. And in the hospital, when they're going through a crisis, they they want a God with skin on that will speak to them and listen to them and pray with them and cry with them and and go through the emotional ups and downs with them. I seldom cry with them anymore. I came close yesterday with a young person who's having a very difficult time uh, because she's so young and yet she hurts so bad. She's she's able to pray and willing to pray. Lord, make this body well or take it home. Mm-hmm. And when people are in that kind of a spot, you know, in their twenties. Now, that's a horrible, horrible time, a very holy time to be with a person and sharing our Lord's love and trying to help the person or enable the person to have a sense of hope and a sense that God does love them and care for them in that spot, even though, it, like one patient told me years ago, I think God has put me on hold, yeah. you know, to be there and remind them that God does love them and care for them, even though nothing is happening. They're not getting better. You know, sometimes they get worse before they get better. And so it's a a very, very holy time often with patients and families. And especially when you're dealing with people who are dying and, and they don't want to die and the family doesn't want them to die. And, and to enable them to come to realize that our Lord suffered and died on the cross so that we could go to heaven and there's a better place. Mm-hmm. And for them to come to terms with, you know, granted, death, God didn't make us to die, but Death is a blessing. There's better things, there's worse things than death. Mm-hmm. That's and for sure. people see that in the hospital too. So when I as a pastor go do hospital visits, I sometimes find myself struggling to find just the right words for any given situation. Do you have any advice for pastors as they do visits or how do you handle those really difficult situations? Well, it's something as to how, uh, there's a verse in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. And I probably use that verse close to two or three times a week with patients and families because sometimes there's in situations there just isn't anything we can say. Mm-hmm. But to be together with each other, uh, love one another, care for one another. And in the silence, the priorities that patients and families want to talk about, it will rise to the surface. And as... We minister to people and listen to them, even in the stillness, and think about, you know, kind of crawl into their skin, uh, crawl into their hearts and souls and minds, and to think of how you would feel if you were in that spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, there's a 30-year-old woman who's expecting a baby, and she may be stuck here for two months on bed rest, pretty much, and she's bored, and she's frustrated and she's lonely and she's homesick and she's you know she just wants to visit she wants somebody to stop by you know it's real easy in that situation in a way but yet it's frustrating and so she appreciates somebody coming or somebody calling or whatever because her days are long 
But, you know, in other cases, when people are struggling with God not answering the prayers the way they want, all we can do sometimes is just be still. Mm -hmm. And we can pray what they want us to pray, which I do over and over, but I also always try to include the Lord's Prayer as we say that together, which also says, Thy will be done. Because we really want what the Lord wants, because He knows what's best. Right. Right. So don't be worried about those silences when they come. No way. Let them come, because those can be precious. Are there any particular, you shared a couple already, but are there any particular stories or experiences that stick out in your mind that you've had as a chaplain? Oh, yes. There was a fellow from the Quad Cities uh, back in the 80s, who, early 80s, who needed to be on hemodialysis because his kidneys weren't working. And even though we were transplanting kidneys at that time, he was too old to be a candidate uh, for a kidney at that point. Now we would do it, but back then that wasn't the case. And uh, he had told his wife that he did not want to uh, continue living the way he was. Uh, he didn't want to have to make three trips every week to come up to Iowa City for hemodialysis. He was on a waiting list for dialysis in the Quad Cities, but, uh, you know, who knows? Nobody knew how long that would take before he would come up on the list. Mm -hmm. And on a Sunday morning, he developed a uh, medical situation where he had to go on a ventilator, and he had you know, told his wife and told me and told another chaplain that, you know, he just didn't want to continue living this way. Well, because of the staff doctor not being here on Sunday morning, the resident doctor who was here, and because the situation was a reversible situation, even though the patient wanted was willing and thought he was ready to die, the, the resident didn't know that. Uh, and because it was a medical, physical, reversible situation, the resident had felt compelled to put him in intensive care and put him on a respirator. Mm -hmm. And his wife talked to me and said, did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing? I know he didn't want this, you know. And, and so she was really caught, and there was nothing I could do but support her. And I talked to the resident, and, and I said, well, did you know he didn't want this? And he says, "I no, I didn't. But I said, but he said, this is a reversible situation. So, you know. There's, I had no choice. Mm -hmm. That was his feeling at the time. And uh, the fellow got better and uh, within a couple of weeks was discharged and within a couple of months got on the, got on dialysis in the Quad Cities or maybe even less than a couple of months. And he lived three more years and had three good years of quality life. Huh. And uh, that was one of my first experiences of of uh, learning to roll with the punches and of how things can change uh, and be different than you expect them to be, uh, even different than what the patient expected them to be. Sure. Uh, and also it was a good lesson in humility that the Lord is the Lord and we are his people. Mm -hmm. And the Lord is the Lord over life and the Lord is the Lord over death. And uh, we can prolong the dying process, but and or the living process or whatever, but we can't. If we he wants us to live, we will live. Yeah. And so I've come to appreciate those built-in humiliation factors over and over again, 
because there's people who get well that aren't expected to get well, and there's people who die who aren't expected to die. And it's it's uh, tremendous serving our Lord, who is truly the Lord yeah. of life and death and of the universe and of the world. Other stories? Well, I guess another one that's medically challenging is a 72-year-old fellow who came to us for heart surgery from uh, the Clinton area, and he had told his sons that, and this was just before Living Wills kind of came into being, he told his sons that if he got into what they call Never Never Land, he says, no, don't you let me stay there. You let me go. And his heart surgery went well, and he did well, and but then after surgery, he just kind of got stuck in surgical intensive care, and he wasn't getting better, and he wasn't getting worse. And then he started taking two or three steps backward, and then one step forward, but little by little, he was just going backwards. And finally, after about a week and a half, I asked the head of surgical intensive care, who anesthesiology doctors staff the intensive cares because that's their responsibility to keep the bodies alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this doctor was well-seasoned and experienced, and he says, oh, no, he's not going to make it. And then when we talked to the surgeon, who was a younger person and and also very skilled, he said, oh, no, he just needs more time to heal and, and that sort of thing. And uh, the sons were caught in between. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of experiences with a couple of other patients, an older patient in the 70s who was in intensive care after heart surgery for a month before he finally woke up and and so forth. Another man from the Quad Cities, a young man who had his third heart surgery because he had a congenital heart defect since youth and since he was born, and, and this was his last one, and he was a very, very anxious person, and they constantly had to knock him out and sedate him over and over again because he was so anxious. And uh, he was in intensive care for a month. But now back to the first person, uh, he ended up dying. Uh, and it was interesting as to how you know, the doctors don't always agree with each other. And, of yeah. course, this puts the families in a tough spot. However, this is where our faith comes through again in a beautiful way. Because, you know, just as the disciples did not want Jesus to leave them, Jesus said, but I have to leave so I can send the Comforter who will guide you into all truth. And that's my prayer with patients and families, you know, that the Holy Spirit guide us to do the things we need to do and not do the things we don't need to do. And the Holy Spirit answers those prayers. He blesses the families. He blesses the patients with answers to their dilemmas. Granted, some families are slower than others to listen and get the message uh, because they've got to work through so many emotions in in some of the situations. But the Holy Spirit's working. Over and over, uh, 24-7, and I'm just so grateful for the blessing of the Spirit in this place because we would have so many tragic situations if it wasn't for the work of the Spirit with our patients and families over, and as well as with the staff, too, as far as that goes. Are there any challenges that you've had to deal with just in that you're in a, a state-run hospital, and but you're there in a for a religious purpose? Well... Our department of uh, pastoral services or spiritual services is very, very small, and none of us are paid by the hospital, and so that you could say that we could have lots of troubles and lots of challenges, but for the most part, 
a majority of the staff want us to be here and a majority of the patients and families want us to be here. Now, that minority, there are those minority people who don't want us to be here and and uh, they're not the, the greatest team members uh, and coworkers when we're trying to work together with patients and families, but uh, given time, they can sometimes change a little bit and become a little bit more open and a little bit more supportive of our Lord's work. But uh, not necessarily. It just varies. Uh, there's very little open hostility, but there's a lot of subtle body language type things and sure. lack of eye contact and, and uh, you know, just you know that they don't necessarily want to have a whole lot to do with you. But... Uh, the big thing is to respect them where they are and respect them as human beings and that God loves them too, you know, and you never know when when something may happen and they may want to talk to you. I've had that happen too. Yeah. So if someone would like to know more about the chaplaincy program, uh, as it, both to um, learn how to support it uh, uh, or just to get general information or if someone's interested in uh, looking into it as a calling, uh, uh, what are the avenues that they should go through uh, their uh, contact people websites? As far as our district goes, uh, our district has this endowment fund that people can support if they want to. It's called the Iowa District East Chaplaincy Endowment Fund, and it's over $220,000 now, and so it's it's growing, and but it needs a lot more support. Uh, we figure it would take up to $500,000 to support our halftime chaplain, Deaconess Carol Goldfish, who is now supported by some congregations and individuals and groups uh, since she's no longer supported by the district. Uh, that's kind of been the first goal, uh, and at least it was some years ago, but I don't know where we're at. I don't know exactly uh, what our board of directors is thinking about that at the present time. Uh, as a calling... Uh, we've had uh, three or four pastors in our district. There was Rocky Mace at St. Paul's in Dubuque years ago who who left and went into clinical pastor education and and uh, was thinking about becoming a supervisor. It took quite a few quarters of clinical pastor education to become a supervisor eventually. And, and then a pastor that was at Redeemer Waterloo uh, not too many years ago before Pastor Knox came. Uh, he went became took clinical pastor education and is a chaplain up in St. Paul, Minnesota now. So we have had pastors pursue, well, no, there was another pastor, uh, Morris Lind, who was at Stanwood, and then he took uh, clinical training here, and then he went to, took a call in Mount Pleasant and served many years there, and then he went to Des Moines and took more clinical pastor education, and then he served at Alma, and then he served as a chaplain in Milwaukee, and, and now he's back into a congregation north of Milwaukee. So... We've had uh, those situations right here in our district over the years since I've been here. But they can contact me for information uh, here at the hospital. My office number is area code 319-356-1987. And they can leave a message if I'm not here. And if they want to get a hold of me quicker, why they can call the hospital operator, which is same area code 319 one six and have them page me on thirty four thirty six. I uh, but they can also uh, our chaplain Carol Deaconess Goldfish is half time here 
and she's half-time at Trinity Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids, and she could be contacted about her training and the experience she got. Uh, she was a, became a parochial school teacher and taught a number of years and got her Master's of Arts in Religion and in the process got uh, a quarter of clinical pastor education and found out that she felt called into the chaplaincy ministry uh, as a deaconess. And uh, we've had deaconesses in chaplaincy ministry for, well, probably forever. Uh, our church hasn't, don't has, we don't have very many, but we do have more than I think the ELCA does. Uh, and so uh, she would be another good contact, especially for women who are thinking about deaconess work and deaconess ministry, because there's some many different areas of ministry for both men and women in our world today. So there are people who get clinical pastor education to become pastoral counselors. Uh, but there's also another organization called the American Association of Pastoral Counselors, which has a training program to train people to be uh, pastoral or spiritual care counselors as well. And that can be either together with clinical training or, I guess, yeah, I think most of those have some clinical training. I'm not sure. Uh, I do know that a master's degree is required there. Okay. Do you have any unrelated projects that you're personally working on that you'd like to mention? Well, I have. I became a charter member of the Lions Club here in the hospital, and we're the, probably one of the only hospital-based Lions Clubs in the world. And that's been kind of uh, different and and very interesting to learn about the, the work of the Lions Club with the Iowa La, Iowa Lions Eye Bank here, uh, because most of the money that the Lions raise in the state of Iowa comes here at the University of Iowa for the Eye Bank and in support of cornea transplants. And uh, I've really come to appreciate when you're with patients who receive a cornea and they can see so much better than they could before, because before they couldn't see at all hardly, mm-hmm. and uh, and to learn, you know, all the different things that the lions do, not only with eyes, but with hearing and and other things that they do around the world as well as here in Iowa has been a learning, growing, interesting thing for me too. Being in Iowa District East and serving in this capacity and going to congregations and and sharing about the Lord's work here has been a neat blessing. Uh, even though it's a part of this ministry and a very necessary part, that's that's also a very special blessing because... Uh, people appreciate hearing about this work and appreciate wanting to support it. I have been on the board of directors of Goodwill uh, here in Iowa City for seven years, years ago, because I had a brother who went through the Goodwill training program and, and uh, was blessed with work even before he completed the training program. So uh, that was another thing that I took in, took on and was a part of. And being involved with our Redeemer Lutheran Church as a member in different areas, I've been involved with the Luke and Lehman's League years ago, and uh, I'm not as involved now as I used to be because I don't have the energy. Sure. But uh, I'm in a small group Bible class with some folks from Redeemer, and that has been a tremendous blessing uh, for my wife and myself to have that kind of support and fellowship and opportunity to grow in our faith in relationship with our Lord and with each other and others at Redeemer. And Anything else you'd like to add? Oh, I think a big word of thank you for all the prayers that people have prayed for me personally uh, around the district. I know there are a number of people who pray for me every day and pray for our Lord's work here. Uh, 
that is for the Holy Spirit to get me at the right place at the right time. That is so awesome to be a part of that kind of dynamic and ministry. It's just a beautiful, daily, humbling blessing because to be led by the Spirit to the right place and to be with the people at the right time. And that happened this morning on my way into work. I stopped to see a patient and uh, got to see a, a family member, the patient that I didn't get to visit with yesterday like I wanted to. And, you know, I was a little frustrated. And I thought, well, that's okay. It'll work out. And, you know, this morning it was just perfect timing. You know, the Spirit just had it all set up, waiting for me to walk into it. And so those prayers are just invaluable. And, of course, the financial support is, is very important. I like to eat and have a house and a roof over my head, too. So I uh, appreciate the financial support because I know we have people who are truly sacrificing uh, and tithing and of their gifts and so forth, and we have people who can't do that and would like to. And uh, and so that uh, I'm just very grateful for the hearts that people have for our Lord's work in our district and as well around the world because there's ministry everywhere. And I think of what happened with the hurricanes in down south and the Tusami over in Southeast Asia and you know, all those natural disasters and as well as wars that just continue to plague our world. You know, it just is quite a world we live in, and thank God for that faith that he has given us and continues to bless us with the Holy Spirit as we go through all sorts of ups and downs in this world. It's thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, and please keep that Holy Spirit coming and working. Amen. Amen. Right, well, thank you, Harold, uh, for the interview, and, and also thank you for all the work that you do there. I know I have members here at St. Paul's that are – um, that have received uh, blessings from you and visits from you um, at when they were in the hospital there, and um, and they're really supportive of your work and um, just really appreciate all that you do for us. And um, and I'd like to also just extend a thank you to all of the uh, the chaplains in various ministries that are out there listening to this, and um, and thank all of you for all that you do uh, for God's people. Thank you, and also thank you for the parish pastors who follow up with these folks when they come back home from the hospital, because that follow-up pastoral care is so valuable and so meaningful for those folks as they adjust to such major changes in their lives. Thank you very much, Dale. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. And now it's time for the product suggestion of the week. What we need next is a confessional Lutheran search engine. If you've ever used Google to look for a resource for Sunday school or some other church activity, especially something that needs some doctrinal content, there's a lot of chaff to weed through, and it takes forever to find something good. Someone who knows a bit about indexing has, and has time to enter a bunch of website domains needs to create a Lutheran site like Google. It wouldn't spider every site on the Internet. Rather, it would begin with sites like lcms.org, district websites, RSOs like the Lutheran Hour Ministries and oafc.org, our college and seminary websites, lcmspastor.com, of course, and other independent sites, as well as congregational websites. Webmasters may submit their ideas for spidering, and after a simple approval process, the site would be added. If someone is interested in this project, contact me, and I'd be happy to incorporate it into lcmspastor.com so that you can use my server space for the index and bandwidth. Or feel free to do it yourself and let me know, and I'd be happy to help promote it. This week's tech tip involves reaching your shut-ins. Besides letting them know when the Lutheran Hour is on in your area, get them connected with your congregation. 
If possible, videotape the services and make copies. Every church is different, so the format will depend on your church. Almost everyone has a VCR, so you can make copies of the service by picking up an extra VCR or two and copying them that way. VCRs can be bought for under $50. Just make sure you buy a recorder, not just a player. If your shut-ins are a bit more tech-savvy, you can get a set-top DVD burner and make DVDs of the service. If you get DVD RWs, you can erase them and reuse the DVDs. Another option is to go audio only, and in most cases you'll want to just include the sermon. Record with a tape recorder or a digital MP3 recorder. If you have an iPod, you can get a microphone to attach to it. These can be copied to cassette or burned to CDRW, again depending on, on what kind of player the shut-ins have. Our congregation bought a few VCRs for those who still don't have them. If you have members deliver the tapes or discs, encourage them to stay and chat for a while if possible. Most homebound people are happy to have visitors, and this is another way to minister to them. If you have college students, members in the military, or other members who aren't homebound but can't join you for services, you might consider mailing discs to them as well. If you're looking for cheap blank CDs or DVDs, I've had good experiences with SuperMediaStore.com. Their prices are excellent, and they are not a sponsor. I'm not affiliated with them. I'm just a happy customer. Look for Tayo Yudin as a brand name, as some of the other blanks, especially DVD media, can be flaky. But Tayo Yudin consistently produces good quality media. Again, not affiliated, just a happy customer. For tapes, either VHS or audio, just get the cheap ones at your local discount store. This podcast is brought to you free of charge. That said, my wife and I are hoping to adopt an orphan or two from Ukraine in the next year or two to give them a Christian home and are raising money to make that possible. If you'd like to help make that happen, you can make a donation, purchase through our affiliate links, or send us your used inkjet cartridges. You can find more information at www.myheartsjoy.com. And while any and all help is appreciated, you are under absolutely no obligation. I'm happy to make this available to all regardless and appreciate you listening. Thank you. Next week on Lutheran Weekly, we will have David Lang from Oak Tree Software, makers of Accordance Bible Software. We'll talk about Bible software in general, so even if you're not interested in this particular software, you'll want to tune in. And let your friends, neighbors, and colleagues know about us too. And don't forget to share your favorite tech tips and product suggestions with us. Well, that closes the book on another Lutheran Weekly. Remember that you can post comments on our forums at lcmspastor.com forum and ask questions of upcoming guests. Your questions will be read on the air during the interview. If you'd like to leave a voicemail to be aired on the show, you may call 206-339-7909 to leave a message. Thank you, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.